I'm Christy. As you can tell, I'm not Pastor Barry. <laughs> Pastor Barry is at a conference this week with um, chaplains as well as other um, leaders and pastors from Foursquare. They're having the Foursquare convention this week up in Seattle. So he is up there receiving and relaxing and being filled up. And so I'm going to be stepping in for him this morning and bringing the word to you guys this morning. And I am excited because we are talking about the life of Jesus and the stories of his life that we kind of probably already know mostly, but sometimes we know them so well that we kind of just go through them quickly and move on. And there's little nuggets that we can pull out of each of those stories that actually apply to our life as the Lord wants to use to minister to our lives. Well, this morning, um, how many of you guys have heard of geocaching? <laughs> See, you guys are informed people, man. I just learned. I just learned about such a thing. Well, what geocaching is, is basically treasure hunting at a low level. Not, not gold treasure hunting, but treasure hunting. And um, my oldest daughter, Sela, is the one who introduced me to this. And she, you can see a picture of her. It looks like we have a filter on her, but we don't. It's just the way it showed up. But we went on our very first geocaching trip. And let me tell you a little bit about the history of it. What it is, is basically, uh, not history, but how it works. Uh, You download this app on your phone. And it has coordinates of where all these little treasures are hidden out throughout the United States, around the world. Wherever you are, it'll, it'll pick you up and you can go and find these little treasures. And they'll give you coordinates and you go to those places and then you have to look and find. And when you find it, you can either take what's in the box out and leave something there. Or you can just sign the little logbook with your, your initials and the date that you actually found that little treasure. And then you put it back where it was and you leave. And you go find something new. Well, part of it is that you have these hints that you can, the difficulty, like if it's a hard one to find, it'll be like, you know, it can go up to five circles, right? Like five stars. But circles, the terrain, if it's really hard to get to, or the size of the container that you're looking for, sometimes people will leave hints. It's small or just one word hints. And so it's a lot of fun. Well, we ended up trying it. This was our second time going out. We found, Sayla found coordinates that were not too far from our house. So the kids and I all walked over to where it was. And then we started searching. We were looking all over. And Sayla's holding my phone two yards, one yard. Oh, seven yards. Oh, okay. And trying to find it. Finally, we found it. And this was her face when she pulled it out. was like, wow, we found it. And of course, you can tell it's not like a huge treasure. I don't know if you can see it, but it was basically like a metal ball bearing marble. But it was the coolest thing in the world at that moment. And so she pulled it out and she put one, she brought a little bag of things that she would leave behind and she put one of her little treasures in there, wrote her name and we dated it and then put it all back. Walked, walked home and we were all excited about, oh, let's go on another one right now. Okay, where's another one? We talked all the way home. Well, this morning, as I was getting ready for, uh, to speak this morning, What we're going to be doing is kind of going on a treasure hunt, but you're not going to be doing the hunting. I'm actually going to kind of just show you little things that I pulled out of the scriptures this morning as we were, as I was preparing for this day. And my hope is that your heart would be stirred with his love for you, that your faith would be stirred up to believe him for things maybe you haven't believed him for before. And as well, that you would deepen in your worship of him, that your worship with him would go to a new level, um, and um, 
your peace would increase. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your word that you're here and you've been here. Um, When we come together, Lord, you are in our midst. And Lord, I pray this morning that uh, you would just have your way in this place, Lord. And we agree in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to be bringing you the story of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus out of John 11. So I'm not going to, we're not going to read the whole story, but I'm going to recap it to you and just kind of go through the story. And then we're going to pull out some scriptures and look at them more closely. Well, to go back to what we know, we're familiar with this story because we've heard little snippets of Mary and Martha and the story of Martha serving and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. We're familiar with the characters and how Jesus told Martha, you need to learn how to sit. And she just had a hard time with that. And we learned that Mary was the one who sat when she maybe should have been serving. And in those days, women were not taught. Um, they were not taught by, they were not considered, you know, you wouldn't teach women. And so it was kind of uh, an uncommon thing for a woman to sit and learn. She should be up serving. And so we see that scenario. And then it skips over to this scenario. And in this scenario, Jesus, okay, so going back a little bit, this family was two sisters and a brother. We don't know if they were married. We don't know about parents. We just know of the three of them. We know that they're adults and that they are somehow probably living in the same house. And in those days, men were the workers and women, well, they worked how they could and they brought in what they could, but for the most part, they were home. And so Lazarus would have been their primary bacon bringer. And so we know that they lived in Bethany, which was two miles away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the headquarters for all the Jewish holidays and festivals. That's where everybody would go for um, the Jews. That's... So Jesus, being a Jew, went there often. And along his travels in his life, he met Mary and Martha and Lazarus and became close to them. And they would invite him to their home. He would spend time there and eat and probably stayed there. And this was a landing place we've heard of and and a very comfortable place for Jesus. So these were close friends of his. He loved them very much. Well, Lazarus gets sick and sick enough to where the sisters say, we better send for Jesus because we don't know if he's going to make it. And so they send a messenger to go get Jesus and Jesus receives a message. Now at this time he had been living We've been looking at this map a little bit, and you can kind of see Bethany down here in, where it says Judea. Right above it, there's Bethany and Jerusalem. But we know the last time that's recorded in here, in, in the book of John, is that Jesus had gone across the Jordan River and was somewhere around the place where G, um, John the Baptist had been baptizing. So he was a little bit of ways away. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He was a little ways away. And what had happened was the message had come, and he had gotten it, and then he said, I'm not going yet. What? And he waited two more days. So at the end of these two days, he packs up his his things, he goes, and he arrives in Bethany, and he learns that Lazarus is dead, and he's been dead for four days, and he's been in the tomb for four days. Let that sink in for a second. He's dead but he's been dead for four days in the tomb. That's a whole nother level of miracle. Nobody's even heard of this before. Well, Martha meets him at the edge of town and she's overcome and she she falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And immediately Jesus says to her, well, he's going to rise again. 
And she says, I, I know that. I know. I know about the last day, the resurrection at the last day. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, that's a whole lot to take in. And she says, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the sent one that has come. And at that, she turns and she goes to get Mary. And Mary is at home. And she's overcome and she's grieving. And when Martha gets there, she says, Mary, the teacher's here. So Mary drops everything and runs to go meet him. And when she gets to see Jesus, she falls at his feet and she weeps. And she says, Lord, the same thing that Martha said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And here we see the emotion of Jesus. We see that he sees Mary and Martha, and he sees the Jews, and he sees their grief, and we see him weep. The Bible says he weeps. The next thing he says, take me to the tomb. Okay, come, come, come with us to the tomb. So they take him, and once he gets to the tomb, he's standing there, and he's overcome again. The Bible says he was deeply moved and troubled twice. We're going to be talking about that. But. And he calls for the stone to be removed, and Martha immediately says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's been in there four days. Four days is a long time for a body to be left. It begins to decay. And there's going to be a smell, Lord. And Jesus questions her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We don't hear what she says, but the stone is moved. (laughs) The stone is moved. And then Jesus stands and he doesn't say, oh God, please raise Lazarus from the dead. No, he says, thank you, God, for this opportunity that you are going to glorify yourself in me. And, and then he proceeds to do what he had planned to do from the very beginning. He speaks out in a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come out. And in that very instance, a body that had been dead and starting to rot for four days takes its first breath and comes back into a complete place of restoration. A complete place of restoration. There was no sickness left. Lazarus comes to life and he's restored to his sisters and friends. And many, believe, um, many Jews that were there watching believed in him that day. Now going back, we have a whole story of a beautiful story of the restoration of a family. And there's some things we're, we're going to look at three verses this morning. The first one I want to look at is John eleven thirty eight. 38. It says, Once more, I'm sorry, Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. The words deeply moved happen two times in this chapter. And we know that if something is mentioned twice or more than once, we should probably pay attention to it because there's something that the writer is trying to tell us means more. There's a, that we we need to be careful there and look at it a little differently. And so, in verse uh, 33, Mary is weeping. This is the first time it's, hap- we, um, it's mentioned, deeply moved. And it's verse, verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
The second time we see it is in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, very much like most tombs probably in those days. And the tomb that Jesus was going to be laid in also. So we see this mentioned twice. Well, why? Why is it mentioned twice? Why was Jesus deeply moved? We know, for one, that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were close friends of his. He was moved by their sorrow. He was moved by his own sorrow. That was his friend who had suffered. He was moved that they were his friends and they were suffering. And even though he was the God of life, or he is the God of life, in that moment, the emotion of what was happening was real. And it was a tender moment. And the Lord was tender with that and careful. He didn't come in right away and say, well, I'm going to raise him from the dead and just bring all this gusto into the situation. He, he respected their pain and he respected their emotions and he wept with them. We do see that. But then we also see another aspect to it. In verse 21 and 32, Mary and Martha both say the same thing. If you had been here. Now we know, before I even go to this point, we know that they believed in Jesus. They believed he was God. They did not have the scriptures like we do today. They could not look at the whole situation and say, well, it's a given. He's God. They only had the parts that they saw in their lives with him. And they only had what the scriptures had, had from the law and the prophets that they would hear when they would go to temple or when they would go to Sabbath or to, to worship sen, um, sessions. But they didn't have the whole picture. And here was this person in front of them. They had seen him do some miracles and they had seen him speak these words that were amazing that no one else spoke like, that filled them up on the inside. And they believed, yeah, I, I believe he could be God. I believe he, he is. And there was this faith in them that was there. But there was also this, but what if? Well, you know, what if? Um, and they both, we see it in their, in their pain and in their loss, in their suffering, that they were dealing with, well, we sent for Jesus, and Jesus loves us. And if Jesus loves us so much, how come he hadn't come here and taken care of this before it got this bad? And we see that there's a conflict in their hearts, the question of why. Why didn't you come? Why did you allow this? Their situation caused their heart to somewhat question his love for them. I thought you loved me. And even though maybe that wasn't the weight of everything, those things were happening inside of them at the same time they were grieving. And we see that in their words. And as, that's a normal thing, right? When we are in distress, we start to question. We, we know that difficulties and pain start to question. We, we start to question ourselves. Did I hear God right? Why would he allow this if he loved me? Well, maybe he's angry with me. What did I do? What, show me, God, what I did. What, what do I do now? I mean, uh, this is totally out of anything I had planned for. What do I do now? We question ourselves and we start to come undone in some of the things that we've proclaimed so strongly. Well, how can you possibly bring good from this? I've prayed, but you aren't answering we see the Jews were also conflicted. There was, so at the time when Jesus um, got there, there were Jews that had come from Jerusalem because if you look at the map, 
Jerusalem is like here and Bethany is here. So it was only that far of a walk. It was really close, like that far. Just kidding. You guys. Okay. Anyway, it was less than two miles. So there was a lot of Jews who had come from Jerusalem and they were there comforting Mary and Martha. And they were surrounding them. And we know from reading the Bible that the Jews were a divided people. Some of them believed and some of them didn't. And that's just how people are in general, right? Well, in verse 11, 36 through 37, I'm sorry, chapter 11, 36 through 37, it says, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So there was two different conversations happening here. There was some who saw his tears and said, man, he loved them. And there was some who saw his tears and questioned, well, what's that all about? Because, I mean, isn't he supposed to be God? He should have done something. And we see this happening here. And we see that deeply moved and troubled happens. Like, so it happened, it's, it's in the scripture when, when Mary is grieving and he sees her. And he's weeping, she's weeping, and the Jews around her are weeping, and he's deeply moved in spirit, and he's troubled. And then he gets to the tomb, and he's does, it's again listed that he's deeply moved. And so we see two things happening. He was deeply moved at their emotion and their loss. But he was also deeply moved with unbelief. Because there was an unbelief that was happening. And, and this is what... This, um, when I was looking up, kind of like, what's deeply moved and troubled? Kind of like, what does that really look like? It's a word picture. It means to snort like a horse in anger and agitation. Think of a horse that's been poked at. Mm, mm, mm. And it starts to get agitated. And it's, think of a horse that's been bridled, so it can't really unleash. And it's there, and it's agitated, and there's this building like, ugh. And it starts to snort. And when it starts to snort and rear its head, you want to either move or stop what you're doing because something is about to happen. And it's going to be powerful and it could hurt you. (laughs) Right? Well, we know Jesus was not like given to anger. But we do know that there was something inside of him that said enough. Enough. And he was grieved with them at their loss, but he was also grieving their unbelief and their lack of faith, the Jews. And this thinking that was happening in the Jews around them was starting to affect his beloved, the ones he was close to. And I think that's what troubled him the most is, you know me, and I love you. I have not changed. And so we see Jesus come to the tomb, and he says, he's, and as he's getting ready to do something, there's a stirring in the story. There's a, there's a, 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 a climax is building. Something is getting ready to happen in the story because Jesus is coming to the tomb and he is deeply moved and he is troubled. And so we see that Jesus hasn't changed, right? And he is deeply moved by our pain and he wants to approach the tombs in our lives the same way. Like I said, sometimes we start to question ourselves when things happen. And, well, maybe I didn't hear God. Or, well, I mean, I believe you love me, but I don't understand why this is happening. And I've prayed about it, and I don't feel like you're answering me. So what, what do I do with this, God? What do I do with this? And at the right time, God comes 
into that situation and speaks a word and changes everything. And he is the same. And we get to see the picture of it in their lives. The second piece I want to pull out to you this morning is in John 11.40. Let's look at the dialogue between Martha and Jesus for a second. Martha gives three statements of faith. We see, Martha, even now, God will give you what you ask. This is right when Jesus arrives and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you what you ask. It's kind of like she doesn't want to fully believe that he doesn't, you know, that she doesn't want to doubt him because she's going back to her faith. But wait, wait, I know this is true. Her first statement of faith. He will rise again, Mary. I mean, Martha. He will rise again. And Martha says, I know at the last day, that resurrection. It's her second statement of faith. I believe what you've told me. There's going to be a day and he's going to rise. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? And she, he turns her understanding about an event to, it's not an event. It's a person. And it's me, and I'm here. And that's a huge concept. And she doesn't really, she just says, okay, yes, yes, I believe that. And I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, the one to come. I'm going to wrap it all together. I believe it. I don't understand it all, but I believe it. And she says these three statements of faith. She says all these And then they go to the tomb, they take away the stone, and here is where we see Martha's words kind of like, well, wait a minute, I believe those things, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. You don't understand how big the situation is here, Jesus, okay? That's the thinking, like, you, this is big, okay? He's stinky, and it's been four days, and and I don't even know what to expect, right? Right? See, Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, and, and by this, this death, this is something they had never experienced before. This is the only death in the Bible that we see where a body had actually been buried for four days in the tomb before it was resurrected. All of the other ones were there being carried out or had, it, it had just happened recently, and the person arrives on the scene, and then the person is resurrected. But this one is the person was in the tomb for four days. Death had one it looked like. And the history about the Jews was that some of them believed that the soul would stay close to the body for three days, hoping to return. That was just kind of like one of their, their superstitions, in a sense, kind of beliefs, was that the soul, if for three days, it could come back to life. They could come back to life because the soul was lingering. And see, Jesus, see, Jesus waited two days. He waited. I'm sure that all his emotions and all of his desire was to go right then when he heard. Because he loved them. But God was doing something different. And so he waited two days. And we know that God doesn't see death like we do. We see like, well, that's a different degree of death. Because that's someone who's like really, really, really gone. They're just gone. Versus someone who's just passed away. That's how we would view it. That's how our minds tend to view levels of difficulty and things. Well, this is a different level, so I don't know about this one. But that's not how God views anything. 
He doesn't view death that way. Death is death, and I have overcome it. So Jesus responds, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The word glory is a very obscure word in my thinking. What is glory? Is it a bright light? Is it, I have no idea. What is glory? Well, here is talking about renown, what someone is known for, their distinguishing quality. Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see what God is known for? What God, his distinguishing qualities are? See, what God alone is known for is raising the dead. They were going to see these qualities of God, and there was going to be a confidence that would come in and lift up that faith and begin to make it congeal. Their words, her words, Martha's words of faith, her statements of faith, and what God was going to do with it were going to come together, and there was going to be a confidence in her that says, you know what? You are the Son of God. Just like what happened in the upper room when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, there was a confidence that came and he spoke to the people and said, he is the one. Jesus is God. And there was this confidence and that's what God was getting ready to do. Jesus waited this out. He waited this death out for all hope to be gone in any other source. He waited it out. Make no mistake, he didn't want anyone to be um, confused or wonder where this had come from. He was doing something so that he could show them and they could see, I am hope worthy. You can put your hope in me. Jesus was going beyond anything they had any experience with. And this would set a stage for the faith in our hearts that was going to be needed for the days ahead because this was only about one week before Jesus was going to go to the grave. And when he, go, he was gone, it was going to shift everything in their beliefs and in their faith and who they had thought he was. It was going to shift everything. And he needed them to know. He loved them and he wanted them to know, I overcome graves. I overcome death. He was going to make their words and their faith come together as one. The third one we see is that we see what happened with Martha and how Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He restores him to their family. And now Martha and Mary, their lives were changed. Lazarus was too, I'm sure. But Martha and Mary being the onlookers and the ones who were going to be left with the aftermath of Lazarus' death, are, are, we see, are changed. In, in chapter 12, John 12, we see verse 3. Uh, I'm going to read the whole part to you, 1 through, through 3. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Mary, I'm sorry, Martha served. Martha is still serving. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
What stands out to me in this? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What do we know about fragrance? Well, let's back up. Let's back up. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is a banquet. This was a party. This is a celebration. And people who had been healed and Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, were there and they were giving thanks and they were celebrating Jesus and they were sitting around enjoying each other's company. They were eating and Martha was serving them food. And Mary, overcome, goes to him and she anoints him. We see that she brings a pint. Now, I have a pint with me. Okay, so I don't have pure nard. I have red wine vinegar. (laughs) But this is about a pint. This is one pint. So you can have a picture of what she was holding when she anointed him. It was about something about this size, about this much liquid, almost. It says about. And it it would have been, if you read it into other uh, gospels, it gives a little more detail about what it might have looked like. It says alabaster jar, and that's a alabaster is a type of rock that was um, softer. It was easier to carve, and so craftsmen would make um, beautiful boxes and jars and bowls, and they would be given as gifts. But this would have been something that was very, very precious, because the perfume inside was very precious. Also, it would have been imported because they didn't have this kind of perfume there. A lot of spices and perfumes were brought in from India and that region. So it was something that was imported. It was something that was considered an investment because it was worth a year's wages of a working man. Women didn't get paid like men. This was a working man's wage. And it was hers, obviously, and here she brings in, see, something like this would have been saved for a, um, a celebration like a wedding or a festivity like that or a burial, a very special moment. And what's interesting is that she didn't pour it out on Lazarus. She didn't. But she held on to it. And possibly she held on to it because this was something she could negotiate with in the marketplace. This was plan B. Lazarus is gone, and we, we don't know what Mary and Martha were exactly like. We have snippets, and, and it says that she had lived a sinful life. We don't know what that looked like. We don't know. Some people think, well, she was a prostitute. Well, we don't know that. All we know is that in the town, she was known as being a sinful woman. And so now she had come in contact with Jesus. We can't go back, right? I can't go back to my former way of living. However, I made money then is not how I'm going to make money now. And this is what I have. This is my plan B. I can take this to the market, Martha, and we can live off of this. We could sell it, and it'll carry us for a while until we can figure out what to do. Isn't that the way we solve our problems? We look at what we have. We look at our investments. We look at, well, what what do I have left? And this is what she had left. The Bible says she brought it, and she began to pour it out on him. Now, I I don't really know if it would have been a sealed container with something you could take off. A lot of people say you can break it and then it would have been all poured out. I don't know. But that's not really the point here. The point here is that she pours it out on Jesus. And then she begins to wipe. She poured it on his feet, okay? On his feet. Now, the feet are stinky, even in our day. 
But in those days, they wore sandals and open-toed shoes, if you had shoes. And so, and they walked on dusty roads in places where there was open sewage as well as animal sewage. So it was not like people's feet were clean. When they would come into someone's home, the first thing they would do is to be hospitable. They would have their servants come and wash their guests' feet so that they were comfortable, and then they would feed them. And when they would eat, they would recline at a, 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 some sort of setting on the floor with pillows, and they would lay around on these pillows with their feet extended out so that it was not by the food, of course. And they would eat and enjoy each other's company. Well, Mary slips up behind Jesus and she begins to pour this oil on his feet. And it's a beautiful picture here. This is my plan B, Jesus. And she begins to pour it out on him. And as it's running over his feet, she realizes, and she grabs her hand, she begins to just rub his feet with her hair and slowly wash away the dirt and, and anoint maybe cuts and, and, and little scratches in his feet and just, just love on him. Love on him. She's grateful. Her life has been changed It was a humbling act. And out of this, it says, the fragrance filled the house. The word fragrance is considered a sweet smell, right? We don't use that word when we're talking about the trash. Oh, the trash is very fragrancy. <laughs> or oh, there's a lovely fragrance coming from the trash. The dishes need to be done. <laughs> we don't enjoy those smells. Those, we don't call that a fragrance. We say, oh, the trash stinks and you need to do the dishes. <laughs> Right? But fragrance is used as a lovely smell uh, and a pleasurable aroma. And we see a lot of this word, fragrance, aroma, used when it was given as an offering in the Old Testament system. In the burnt system, I'm sorry, let me go back. In the Old Testament, there was the law, and there were... um, offerings that the people would bring to the temple and they would sacrifice these animals as an offering to the Lord for different reasons. There was for sin, to be forgiven for sin. There was for um, fellowship. And there was other ones. I, don't, I can't tell you them all and all that they mean, but I'm not worried about all that today. I'm worried about one. There's this one and it was called the burnt offering. And that offering was a very different kind of offering because it was one where the whole animal was completely consumed and given to the Lord. In other offerings, sometimes the people would take parts of the animal and they would have a meal. Others were um, given to the priest. Part of it would be given to the priest for his, his livelihood. But this offering, the burnt offering, was completely under the Lord and it was considered an offering of devotion. Devotion has to be heartfelt. You can't devote yourself to someone without your heart. And what happened here was Mary, in pouring out her plan B, she was devoting herself to him and saying, everything, everything is yours. I love you. I'm grateful for you. You have changed my life without any words, pouring it out on him. And she was pouring out the very thing that would have been her backup plan. And this fragrance of her, it's a worship. She worships him in that moment. 
without any words, without any music, without any dancing, without any of that. She worships him in front of the crowd without anybody noticing really until they start to smell something. Mm, Wow, that's a lovely smell. What is that smell? Oh, wow. Jesus, she's pouring stuff all over you. I'm sure Jesus recognized what was happening before that. but. But the fragrance filled the house. And in the Old Testament, when the burnt offering was offered, when it was given, it says the fragrance filled the temple, that the fragrance was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was like, wow, one of the best things. Now, was it because God likes good smells? No. It was because there was a devotion in it. There was a heart in it that said, I'm yours. All I have is yours. I'm not holding back. I don't have a plan B. There's no plan B in this offering. It's all in. And it has cost me everything. And that is what is pleasing. Because in that moment when we offer ourselves out to the Lord like that, when we say everything, God, it doesn't matter what it is, we're saying, I don't have a plan B. I have to trust you. And I believe that you're going to take me to where you want me to be. And I believe that the things that are important to me, you take as important. And I'll trust you. And so her life had been changed. There had been a shift in her understanding of who Jesus was and his love for her. Before Lazarus had been resurrected, he had, she had seen him as her friend, her teacher. And she believed he would be God. He is God. Okay, he's God. I'll believe that. Because I haven't seen this happen before and I haven't seen that happen before. And when he speaks to me, I come to life. Well, this all changed after she saw him in a different light. The God of life, the God of all things, the only one who could ever make life happen in a situation like this, had come and was her friend and had called to life what she needed to be called to life. And Jesus now was more than just a man. He was more than just her teacher. He was more than just her friend, but he was, the, he's, he was God who had always been her friend. He hadn't changed. He had just let her see more of him. And what she heard from him, believed about him, became even more real. And her uncertainty had been met with the truth. Her faith even more solid. And in return, how could she not pour out her investment on him? How could she not pour out her backup plan on him? Her greatest possession it cost her greatly, and there was no reservation. And in the end, the, fa- the fragrance filled the house. This mirrors the Old Testament burnt offering that was pleasing to the Lord. It filled the house. It's interesting that John would put that into the gospel. He didn't have to say that, but he was showing us something. He was showing us about the beauty of that moment, that when we pour our hearts out, that there was a pouring out. And that was lovely to the Lord. And he commends her for it in front of everybody. Because if you read on, the disciples, one of the disciples starts, well, why'd you do that for? That doesn't make any sense. And blah, blah, blah. That should have been put in the money bag so that I could carry it. (laughs) So Jesus, no, this is a lovely thing that she's done. This is a beautiful thing. And little did she know what was coming in just a little over a week or a week. It says six days before Passover. So, a week. 
Jesus had a week left with them before he was going to be crucified and he was going to go to his own grave and he was going to resurrect himself. And, and she didn't know, but what she did was a beautiful thing and she ended up using that perfume that should have been used for festivity or a burial on a moment where there was both happening. And um, her love for him, her worship was deepened. She willingly sacrificed her greatest possession on the one who was going to sacrifice himself for her in just a week. So through this story, we see all these beautiful little pieces, little things that stand out and say, wow, look at that. Look at it from that angle. God was changing their reality. Do you believe I am who I say I am? He was going beyond anything they had any experience with. And even for us, death in a grave seems so final. But Jesus has not changed. His power and his presence are still here. Even in the midst of our pain, we sing a song about in the waiting. It's hard to wait. It's hard to be in a place of pain and wait. It seems like torture. But he's there, and he sees, and he cares, and he is troubled, and he is ready to do something. And at the right moment, we will see him take that stone off the grave, and he will call to life what's been in that grave, and he will bring the change that he's been wanting to bring. He loves us, and he's deeply moved by what we face. I'm going to call the worship team up. So in the end of this, what are you powerless to change? What are the areas in our lives where, that we're powerless to change? Because he cares deeply about this. And he is not powerless. And he's not forgotten. And he doesn't like to see us in pain. He's the one who gives life to the dead, and he calls into being things that are not. He wants to go beyond our familiar. And what has died in our lives? Has something died in your life? Is there an area in your life that you say, no, nah, it's just done. I don't have anything else to give on this. It's just done. And maybe you, in your mind, you've moved on because, well, this is just how life is now. But my question to you is this. Does he say it's dead? Does he say it's done? Because until he says it's done, it's not done. And God wants to call to life those things that we consider are done. And in that, and in our waiting, God is, is doing something. I mean, we know this. We know that God is building our faith continually. But in these moments, he's setting a stage for something that's exquisite in your life. Something that is not seen all the time. He wants to deepen our devotion to him. And the things that we're invested in, what are we invested in? What are we saying, well, this is my plan B, God. If this is not going to happen, then I'm going to do this. This has got to be my plan B. What are we investing ourselves in? And saying, well, if it doesn't happen, I'm going to go this way. 
because he longs for our lives to be poured out on him, to hold nothing back from him, to trust him completely, that there wouldn't be any reserve because when we're in that place, we are devoted and that is a pleasant and pleasing thing to him. He wants us to experience his deep love for us that would overwhelm us and that we would walk in confidence in the days ahead so that when we're waiting for that life to actually happen, that he said is going to happen, we can stand in confidence and say, no, this is what God has said to me. This is what God has said to me. This is what God has said to me. Even though people around us who are not involved in our situation seem to be the experts and have all these ideas, he says, no, this is what I say. This is what I say. Will you hold to me? Will you hold to me? Will you devote yourself to me in this? Will you walk in it? Because if you will, you will see the glory of God. The qualities of God will be made known in your life. He wants you to know above all, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He is loves you. Will you stand with me this morning? I look around this room and I know a lot of your faces, but here's the thing. Every time we come together, the Lord wants to do something in all of us. But he also wants us to have an opportunity for maybe people who have not experienced him to experience him for the first time. So if let's bow our heads. As, as we are getting ready to close. If you have heard these things this morning and something stands out to you this morning and you say, I don't know God like that. I don't know Jesus like that. I've heard about him and I've heard the ideas about him, but I don't really, I wouldn't say he's my friend. I like him, but I'm not close to him. And you want to be close to him? It's easy. This morning with heads bowed, and eyes closed, if you want to make Jesus your friend, if you want him to lead your life, lift your hand up and we'll pray this morning and it will be done. If you've never made him your friend, repeat with me, Lord, Jesus, I thank you that you love me, that you died for me, and that you rose for me. I want to know you. I want to walk with you as my friend. Be the leader of my life. Forgive me and make me part of your family for forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. For the rest of us, church, if something stands out to you this morning, we have people in the back who are ready to pray. But we can pray right now, but I would encourage you more than anything, go and have someone stand with you. There is nothing more powerful than than telling someone else and saying, this is the thing I need help with, or this is what I'm struggling with, or this is my grave that I'm standing for life for. And let them speak to you and pray with you and speak over you and pray and stand with you because the truth is after we leave this place, 
we'll still be standing with you. And there's power in this. Bow your heads with me. We're going to pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your presence in our service this morning. That that you have spoken. That you have shown us yourself in different ways through this whole morning, God. Lord, you are worthy. And we love you. And we want to walk with you into the new places that you have for us, God. Lord, speak over us and show us. Put your finger on the graves in our lives, Lord. Put your finger on those places and say that right there. I want to do something there. And Lord, I pray that we would, be, we would visit with you on this subject and on these areas throughout the week. And Lord, that you would unveil these things and you would take the stones off and begin to show us what you're doing. And that we would be able to stand in faith and that it would take us to the levels you want to go with us in. God, and the places of worship that we, and the, the, yeah, the places of worship that we long for with you. In Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you for this place and that you are here. I pray blessing over us, Lord, as we go through this week. Let these things go deep within our hearts, God, and bring up your life. In Jesus' name, amen.